the next three weeks in particular will almost be like a part one, two, and three. They fit under the one banner of the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles that is the main theme through John chapter 7 all the way through, really, to chapter 8. There are still themes that Jesus is talking about that are to do with the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, so a helpful thing for you to do through the coming weeks is to, in your own time, be reading through passages about the Feast of Tabernacles, where it's mentioned in the Bible, a few areas, Leviticus 23, uh, Zechariah 14, interesting, interestingly, talks about the Feast of Booths in the end and various other ways. I think that would be helpful for us to rightly understand this passage. So I will read out uh, before we begin from John chapter 7, verses 1 to 24. This is God's word. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a whole man's body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. This is God's word. I wonder if you have ever heard the question from someone, usually a skeptic, who doesn't believe in God, to say something along the lines of, if God is real, why doesn't he show himself? If God is real, why doesn't he just show himself uh, and then I'll believe? And of course, the answer is, well, he has. He has shown himself and you still reject him. You killed him. So that is the, the simple answer. Yet the question for those in unbelief remains, well, no, I need more. Why doesn't God show himself? Now, we see a bit of that going on here with Jesus's brothers here, where they're actually saying to him, why don't you show yourself to the world? 
Why don't you show yourself? We see this all throughout John's gospel elsewhere and people saying, give us a sign all throughout the other gospels as well. Show us a sign to show that you are really God. And fundamental to God's character is that he will not be dictated by other people's selfish desires of him. God will not be dictated by other people's selfish desires of him. The psalmist says, our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. That is a beautiful reality of God's character. He does whatever pleases him. Those who have been born of God, God does whatever pleases them as their wills are aligned with his. But God's character, God's actions will not be dictated by selfish fleshly desires. And of course, Jesus, being God in the flesh, is perfectly consistent with this. He will not be dictated by other people's selfish desires of him. At times, he will be merciful and reveal himself even to prideful hearts, but that is on his terms. He will not be dictated by anything other than the perfect will shared between Father, Son, and Spirit. This is what we see today, Jesus revealing himself according to his Terms. Now, as we work through John chapter 7, there is a bit of a transition happening here. There's a clear transition from chapter 6. As we move forward through chapter 7, there are two main aspects of the transition that's happening here. One is that there is increasing isolation and hostility. There's increasing isolation of Jesus away from people in terms of less followers actually following him, and there's increasing hostility. Remember in chapter 6, there were masses of followers, this huge crowd, many of whom Jesus had fed, and they are following him. And by the end of chapter 6, the majority of these have walked away. The picture is that we're left with a minority of true followers. And then not only do we see this, but we see this increasing desire from the Jews to have him killed. This began in chapter 5, remember, where Jesus healed the man on the Sabbath, which he refers to here, and then he made himself equal to be equal with God by saying, just as the Father is working, so am I. And then we read then at chapter 5, verse 17 and 18, that the Jews from then on wanted to kill him. Now, after that, Jesus left Jerusalem. He's been in Galilee for almost a year, and now he is about to head back down to Jerusalem the first time since they made the threats to kill him. So there is increasing hostility amongst the crowds. The Jews are seeking to kill him. There will be many attempts to kill him. We will see by the end of chapter 8, there will be a stoning attempt, that is picking up stones to try and kill him. Jesus uh, escapes that. So we see increasing hostility and isolation of Jesus. Fewer and fewer people are following him. The second transition is we see a change of language. We see this transition where Jesus, through the Gospel of John, has been largely talking about, as John records it, Jesus coming. So his language is very much, I have come into the world. The word was in the beginning, was with God, and the word then came into his own. The word came into the world, yet the world did not receive him. The language is very much of his condescension coming into the world. But now we will see the language change to be Jesus going. He's talking about leaving. So if you skip ahead into verse 33 of our passage, Jesus says, Jesus, uh, Jesus says, I will be with you a little longer and then I am going to him who sent me. 
In chapter 8, 21, Jesus says, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. The language continues in that way. We've seen him coming and now we see him talking about him going. And I believe all of this is again stressing the importance and urgency of the hearers to truly understand who Jesus is, what he is coming to do and how we must respond. There is a sense of urgency. Jesus has come, he's going, you better be right with him. He is revealing himself as the son of God. Everything that he does is intentional to reveal more of who he is and it is meant to press home the need for a response from those who hear, which will be a major theme of our passage today, this idea of Jesus saying you must judge with right judgment. He is calling the people and he's calling us to make a right judgment as to who Jesus is. And there is a sense of urgency about that. So this is what we see as the overarching theme. And in chapter seven and eight, Jesus uses the Feast of Booths to reveal more of who he is. The Feast of Booths is the same as the Feast of Tabernacles. This is what is referred to in verse two. The Jews' Feast of Booths was at hand. This is the last feast in the Jewish uh, religious calendar. The Feast of Tabernacles, where they were meant to remember that they dwelt in tents after God saved them out of Egypt. And so it'd be a week-long festival of them dwelling in their tents or booths in order to commemorate that. And it is significant because John only ever refers to the Feast of Booths here in this passage. He refers to the Passover by its name. Other times he just refers to the Feast of the Jews, and we're not quite sure what he's referring to here. But clearly, in this passage, the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths is something that should uh, spark our attention to what Jesus is actually going to say here. Jesus will reveal aspects of who he is in light of this feast. And we will see this next week and the week after where Jesus talks about being living water or rather out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then in chapter 8, verse uh, 12, he will say, I am light of the world. And these themes of water and light are fundamental to the Feast of Booths. There were celebrations that would go on in the Feast of Booths, specifically a water drawing uh, ritual. And then there was a light ritual. And here Jesus is at the Feast of Booths saying, come to me and out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. You will have rivers of living water. And then in a similar way in chapter eight, come to me because I am light of the world. So just as we are celebrating this feast and we're doing the water drawing right, which we'll look at more next week, and you're lighting the lights as a commemoration, I am true water, I am living water, and I am the light of the world. Jesus is using these to reveal more of who he is, namely that he is the source of living water and the source of light. Now that's just to whet our appetites for the next few weeks as we look at the Feast of Tabernacles and what Jesus says, particularly in verses 37 to 39. But today we will stick with our passage in verses 1 to 24. And the way we see this passage working is through three scenes. There are three scenes of the story. There is the request 
which is the request of the brothers to Jesus that he will reveal himself. There is then the reactions where we see the mixed reactions of the crowd. And then there's the revealing where Jesus finally reveals himself at the feast. So the request, the reactions, and the revealing. Firstly, the request. This is in verses 1 to 8. In verses 1 to 8, we have this interaction with Jesus and his brothers. The context is that Jesus is still in Galilee because, remember, the Jews are trying to kill him. So this is where he spends at least a year through Galilee. And his brothers have obviously heard of his fame. I mean, they're his brothers, and it seems like they're saying, why are you just hanging around in Galilee? Why don't you go to Jerusalem to show yourself to the world again? The Feast of Tabernacles is at hand. This was one of three feasts where all of the males would have to go down to Jerusalem to celebrate, so masses of people would come. And his brothers are sort of provoking him, in a sense, to reveal himself to the world. So his brothers say to him, leave here. Don't stay in Galilee. Go to Judea so that your disciples may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. This is what they are saying to Jesus. Show yourself to the world. Now just sit on the irony of that for just a moment. These are his brothers talking to God in the flesh Jesus, the God-man who has condescended, who has come down from heaven into his own world that he created, and then his brothers who are of the world are saying to him, why don't you show yourself to the world? Well, he has. He's here in the flesh. You're talking to God, asking him to show himself to the world. It's a clear picture of the blindness of those in unbelief. Though God may indeed be there in the flesh, right in front of you, there will always be something more that will be required for those who do not trust in Him. Where people remain in unbelief, people will simply demand more of God according to their terms rather than coming to God according to God's terms. And we see this dynamic being played out here because Jesus resists them. He will not reveal himself according to their fleshly desires. He will not succumb to their desire that he show himself to the world. So he resists this. He says in verse 6, my time has not yet come. Now, I believe the primary meaning of Jesus saying this is to do with when he will enter the feast rather than as though it's uh, primarily about his crucifixion, because the language of my time has not yet come. Usually we think of the crucifixion, which elsewhere it certainly is. I think the primary meaning of this is really to do with when he will enter the feast. The context of this is the Feast of Booths, and Jesus must enter the feast at his appointed time. He will not enter at the beginning of the week-long feast for various reasons, like his brothers are demanding him, he will not enter then. The reality is that his brothers are operating with a worldly clock, you might say. They are operating according to the world's system of time. This is why Jesus says to them, your time is always here. You're of the world. The world will always accept you. You're operating on a worldly clock. Your time is always now. My time is not. The world can't hate you because you're of the world, whereas the world hates me. Jesus is operating according to his heavenly clock, which will in no way be dictated by anything other than God's prerogative. So this is why he says, my time has not yet come. But of course, we know he does go down to the feast. 
He will go at his appointed time. And you might be wondering, why doesn't Jesus just go down? It was probably a matter of a few days. Why doesn't he just go down at the beginning? We know that he says, my time has not yet come, so I'm not going down to the feast. But then a few days later, he goes down to the feast. Now, what is certain is that everything Jesus does is intentional to reveal more of who he is. Jesus is never flippant. It's not like he said, I'm not going to come. And then a few days later, he sort of got a bit of anxiety because everyone was down there and thought, oh, actually, maybe I do want to come. Everything is intentional. He knew exactly when he was going to go down. So firstly, Jesus will not reveal himself according to other people's fleshly desires. We see in our passage that Jesus comes down. When he comes down, it's not publicly, it's in private. It seems like this is another tangible picture of the way God will reveal himself to whom he decides, to whom he chooses. So he will not go down according to fleshly desires. He will go down by his prerogative, and he will reveal himself according to his own desires. But secondly, it seems that, and I think we will see this next week when we look at Jesus' statement in verses 37 to 39, Jesus wants to enter in a subtle way toward the end of the feast. We will see that the language here later on, where verse 14, we read about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up. It's more trying to thrust us toward the end of the feast, saying even after the middle of the feast, Jesus then went down. It seems like Jesus wants to end Uh, wants to end up in the feast at the end of the feast to demonstrate something about himself, namely that he is the end goal of the Feast of Tabernacles. He is the whole goal of that feast. So he subtly enters in in the middle and eventually most publicly reveals himself In verse 37, where on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stands up and he cries out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. In other words, I am the end goal of everything that you are celebrating. I'm here. This whole feast was pointing you toward the day when the Messiah would be here. It seems like this is very much Jesus' purpose in entering toward the end of the feast. See, it's not as though Jesus doesn't want to reveal himself to the world. Of course, he does and he will in one sense. But the reality is that he must reveal himself in light of his divine purpose rather than fleshly desires of him. This is what we see throughout John's gospel, these fleshly desires of Jesus to do certain things and Jesus resisting them. He must reveal himself in light of his divine purpose. The request of Jesus' brothers to show himself to the world has fleshly motivation. It's likely that they think either they're just provoking him or maybe they think, well, Jesus, you had a whole bunch of followers. We're going to ride this wave, but you just lost a whole bunch. So why don't you go back to Jerusalem and get some more followers again? There are fleshly desires And the reality is that they will get the answer to their request. They will get the answer to their request of Jesus to show himself to the world, but it will not be in the way that they thought. Jesus will not ultimately reveal himself to the world through more miraculous works. 
He will not reveal himself to the world through uh, a f- more and more physical bread being handed out. He will reveal himself to the world ultimately as he hangs on a Roman cross with our sins upon himself as the suffering servant. That is the ultimate revelation of God to the world as Christ hangs upon the cross. It is the ultimate answer to the age-old question that we began with today of why doesn't God show himself to the world? Well, he has as the crucified saviour, as the suffering servant. There it is. There is God's most clearest display of love, of holiness, of hatred against sin in Christ on the cross. And as Jesus says in verse 7, he does this for a world that hates him. The world hates Jesus because he exposes the evil of the world. This makes the revelation of Christ on the cross even greater. We're often influenced by thinking that all of humanity was just longing for God to save us. We were waiting for our Savior to come. No, we hated him. We were in rebellion against him. We didn't want him to come. And yet he comes, yet he shows his graciousness in suffering on the cross for a world that hates him. The world in its corruption hates Jesus because Jesus exposes its corruption. Evil does not like its evil deeds to be exposed. So the picture we see in this first scene of the brother's request of Jesus to show himself and of Jesus's response is is this picture of those with worldly desires asking Jesus to show himself to the world. And Jesus in his mercy does show himself to the world, but not to suit superficial fleshly desires, rather to satisfy eternal and fundamental desires, which is why he ultimately reveals himself as the sinless savior who gives himself to a world that despises him. Now this leads us to our second scene here in verses nine and 13. So after this interaction with Jesus' brothers, Jesus very clearly showing that he will not be dictated by fleshly desires. He will reveal himself at his appointed time. Then he eventually does go down to the feast. And amongst the crowd, there is a lot of muttering about Jesus. The word for muttering that we read in verse 12 is the same word that's been used through chapter 6 that's translated as grumbling. It's the same word. So this theme of grumbling against Jesus continues. Remember when Jesus said he is the bread from heaven, we read in chapter 6 that the Jews grumbled at this. They grumbled because he said he is the bread from heaven. And in verse 12, we see this grumbling again. We see it in both reactions. We see the grumbling in people saying he is a good man and others saying, no, he is leading people astray. Now, the thing to notice here is that John does not paint the mixed reactions specifically as positive and negative. He doesn't really paint the reactions of those who say he's a good man as positive and then those who say, no, he's leading people astray as negative. They all fall under under the banner of those who grumble and of those who fail to speak openly of Jesus because of fear of the Jews. They all fall under this category of those who fear the Jews over God, of those who grumble and mutter things about Jesus. 
at best, those who fear man above God will simply whisper that Jesus is perhaps a good man while they are terrified that someone just heard them say that. That is the best case scenario for those who fear man above God. And this scene, just to to help us enter into this scene for a moment, it offers a helpful picture into the way in which people speak of Jesus when the fear of God is not present in their lives. And it is a scene that ought to provoke some self-examination within us as to how we might respond in a similar situation. How might you respond when there is conversation about Jesus amidst a lot of hostility and you have an opportunity there to say something about Christ? How might you respond? There is a hard but necessary correlation between believing in Christ and confessing Christ. There's one thing to believe Christ, it is quite another to confess, to openly confess Christ. The hard reality that we are confronted with throughout the Bible is that those who have truly believed in Christ will confess Christ. Jesus says elsewhere throughout the Gospels, whoever is ashamed of me, of him I will be ashamed of when I come in glory. That is the harsh reality for us. If we are ashamed of Christ so that we whisper subtle things that are not not offensive as a result of lingering shame, Christ will be ashamed of us when he comes in glory. And the people that we see here are, in a sense, ashamed of Jesus. That's why they don't speak openly. They fear what the Jews might say. They do not have a right fear of God, so they whisper their thoughts in private. And the reality is people can offer all sorts of comments on who Jesus is that don't ruffle any feathers simply by whispering in private. Just last night, Jasmine and I were watching a documentary of a man who shall remain nameless, uh, but a very famous man who would profess to be a Christian and, and certainly had the opportunity to speak of his faith and just very clearly was very evasive about that and used language like uh, my faith and sort of took scriptures and actually referred to them to his house as that which grounds him rather than the rock of Christ, which the scripture was referring to. And it was a really clear way of this sense of discomfort and shame that the opportunity is there where the interviewer actually uh, gave him an opportunity to talk about faith. And he chose to use words like, well, I'm not a really religious or churchy kind of guy. It's just really, you know, what works for me. And of course, there's very comfortable ways that we can say that. That doesn't ruffle any feathers. That's going to get you applause. People can uh, choose to make of that as they wish. Again, as I've said the last few weeks, it is quite another thing to speak openly of Christ and to say, well, the reality is the rock of my life is Jesus Christ crucified for my sin. And my hope is that I have an eternity of serving and worshipping him with my fellow brothers and sisters. That is quite another thing. We can do all sorts of things that really fall under this category of whispering about Christ. 
whispering in ways that are not offensive, using language that makes our faith seem kind of cool and downplayed, like we're not really a serious Christian, we're one of those cool Christians. And this is whispering that is fearful of what men might think. And the right confession to go with our belief is not a whisper, it is a shout. And it is a shout that has nothing to do with your vocal range. (laughs) It is a shout that could be a timid voice. But nevertheless, it is a shout that ultimately fears God above men and therefore our confession is dictated by what pleases God rather than men. So you may be trembling before a people where there is an opportunity to profess Christ, but the reality is you tremble far more before the God of heaven and earth than you do before those people. And so with fear in you, you rightly confess Christ. You are, you are guided by what pleases God rather than man. And just a few words of comfort for us who have felt the temptation to shrink back and who have even succumbed to the temptation to shrink back. We must remember the words of Jesus to Peter right before he knew that Peter would deny him. This is where Jesus says to Peter, Peter, Satan has asked you to sift you like wheat and you're going to be sifted like wheat. Referring to when Peter would deny Jesus three times. But Jesus says to Peter, Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Now, Jesus knew Peter was going to deny him, but he upheld Peter in prayer so that even after the denial that left Peter in utter despair, he would be restored. And the same Christ that prayed for Peter is the same Christ that is interceding for us, the same Christ that is praying for us as we go about our task of confessing him. We think of the words of the author of Hebrews, since then we have a faithful high priest like Jesus. Let us hold fast to our confession. Let us seize our confession. This is a call to fear God above man and have a right confession, especially in this world of absolute confusion and chaos over what it is to be a follower of Jesus, over what it is to be a human. Now more than ever, we must hold fast to our confession and rightly confess Christ. As Jesus continues to reveal himself, He demands a right confession of him from those who hear. And now we lead into our final scene where Jesus reveals himself to those at the feast. This is in verses 14 to 24. So from verse 14, we read that Jesus begins to teach from around the middle of the feast. And as I mentioned before, the language is quite literally, when it was already the middle of the feast, Jesus then went down to the feast went up to the feast rather. So when it was already the middle of the feast, Jesus ascended to the feast and taught. The emphasis is upon Jesus coming to the feast toward the end, which is important as we get to verse 37. But here as Jesus teaches in the temple, we see finally he is openly teaching and the Jews are marveling at his insight, specifically because he has never studied. He didn't study under a well-known rabbi, as was the traditional pathway for teachers of the law at that stage. And just as other Jewish teachers, other good rabbis would always reference their source, 
to show their credentials, Jesus here references his source, which is the ultimate source, where he says, well, I've learned this from the Father. That's my source. Jesus answered in, in verse 16, my teaching is not my own, but it is his who sent me, the Father who sent me. And then he says in verse 17, he describes how it is that people will actually know this is the case. Well, he says in verse 17, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. Jesus is saying there is a self-authenticating nature to knowing that this teaching is from God. It's self-authenticating because the Holy Spirit will illuminate that person who is from God to know that the teaching is God's. God's sheep hear his voice. It sounds beautiful and wonderful to them. It smells delightful. To those who are not of the flock, it smells atrocious. It's distasteful. It's the aroma of death leading to death. Those who are born from above will recognize, just as Peter did in our last chapter, you have the words of eternal life. This is God teaching. Again, it is stressing the right response of those who truly come to Jesus. The right response is, of course, to realize that God's, God himself is teaching here. Those sitting at the feet would, of Jesus would recognize this is God in the flesh teaching us. Now, this continues through verse 19 and onwards, where Jesus picks the last event that we went over in chapter 5, where he talks about uh, Moses giving them the law. We read in verse 19, yet none of them keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? And then he refers to how Moses gave them circumcision. And then finally, if on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me? Because on the Sabbath I made a whole man's body well. This is what we went over in chapter 5. This is what triggers the Jewish leaders to seek his life. And they are seeking his life. And here is the important thing as we draw to a close. They are seeking his life because they are completely misguided in their judgments of him. They have a wrong judgment. Though they diligently search the scriptures, they have reached the wrong conclusion of him, which is why Jesus says, Moses gave you the law. You have the law, yet none of you keeps the law. You circumcise on the Sabbath so that that law won't be broken, but then you can't realize why I should heal a man's body on the Sabbath. In simple terms, Jesus is basically saying, you're hypocrites, you're absolute hypocrites. You're completely misguided in your judgment. So this culminates in verse 24. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. This is in the context of Jesus revealing himself to the people and their response to him. He is calling them to judge his claims and his revelation with just judgment, to see that what he is doing is pointing to the fact that he has been sent from God. They are not to judge by superficial judgments that fail to see the deep meaning and symbolism behind what he is revealing. So what is clear from this? Just as we draw to a close, 
and kind of leave, wrap up this part one of the three-part series on the, the Feast of Tabernacles. What is clear from this is that Jesus leaves no room for anyone to respond to his claims with indifference or apathy. Jesus does not leave any room for anyone to give the kind of responses that we see in verse 12 here of, oh, he is a good man. No, he is leading the people astray. There is no room for this middle ground judgment. Jesus does not give us that option. The only options we have is to confess him as Lord and Savior, as God among us, or to completely deny him in rebellion, to utterly reject him. And there is nothing in between. This is what is happening here. We can see where C.S. Lewis got his famous statement of Jesus being either a liar, lunatic, or Lord from passages like this that we are left with today. Jesus is calling the people to judge with right judgment. Now, I think there is a wonderful call for those who do not uh, trust in Christ, but for those of us here who do trust in Christ, I think part of the application is for us to just reorient ourselves back to a bold confession that has no middle ground, no apathy, no indifference in our confession. We must live under the reality that Jesus Christ is indeed Lord of all, that he owns every single thing. He demands allegiance to us. He is returning, Lord willing, soon on a white horse with a robe dipped in blood with the name King of Kings. And he is returning with vengeance. And we are to live each day as though that is coming. We are to be watchful. We are to pledge our allegiance. I think this is part of us judging with right judgment. Everything that Jesus is revealing to us is revealing a savior who demands every ounce of our allegiance. And so therefore, we must constantly examine ourselves to ensure that we are holding fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. This is the message of the writer of Hebrews in chapter 10, verse 23. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. If we are to judge with just judgment, in what Jesus calls us to. We will hold fast to the confession, that bold confession that is not a whisper in private, but is a public declaration of Christ as our Savior. We will do all that we can to stir each other on to love and good works, to hold fast to this confession without wavering.